Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Arts Equator podcast. I'm Kathy Rowland, and uh, with me today is Kai Branat, who is the International Partnerships Coordinator at Cambodia Living Arts, Sunita Janamohanan, who is a researcher and lecturer at LaSalle College of the Arts in the Arts Management Program, and Anne Lee, who is a PhD candidate in Southeast Asian Studies looking at satire and humor in Southeast Asia. I've gathered this group together to talk about the recent 8th World Summit on Arts and Culture that happened in KL um, a couple of weeks ago. The title of the program was Mobile Minds, Culture and Knowledge, and in the spirit of full disclosure, I was actually involved in the programming as part of the International Program Advisory Committee that was put together by the organizer of the World, World, World Summit on Arts and Culture, which is the International Federation of Arts Councils and Cultural Agencies, IFICA. So today, Anne is going to host and lead the discussion, um, and we'll kind of hand over to Anne. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kathy. Uh, Hi, Kai. Hi, Sumita. Okay, so we were all part of this uh, four-day event. We we came along. Um, To me, this was my first uh, attending of of such a a large-scale world summit. It it focused on mobile minds, cultural knowledge and change, and in in a time, I mean, this is all from the bump of the conference, you know, that we received, in a time of profound and ongoing transformation. Now, for me, you know, to what extent arts councils and cultural agencies, uh, you know, which is IFCA, obviously, themselves uh, can be expected to lead change and cope with transformation when someone argue that they are part of the problem that needs change and transformation. Um, I, to me, that's not so much uh, the, the main kind of drive of this discussion. I was more interested, I mean, well, anyway, because the, the notes of the conference point out that, you know, governments, cultural organizations, creative practitioners, citizens, and so on, can and do work together to actively lead change. Um, so there we all were, I think about 400 plus delegates from about 80 over countries. Um, and you know, it was such a large-scale event, uh, it seemed to me that there were a number of macro and micro frameworks presented for the conference, um, and two challenges that I thought were especially interesting. Um, one is the concept of cultural rights, um, now in its 10th year of existence, as identified by the UN Special Rapporteur for Cultural Rights, Karina Benoun, of American and Algerian ethnicity. And second, um, challenges represented uh, by the Anthropocene, Uh, brought up by Kylie Arroyo, uh, Head of Strategic Data and Knowledge. Um, And the Anthropocene, I mean, there are various definitions of it, but let's say we understand it to be the first sort of geological epoch whereby, um, quote, humanity's imprint is so vast that the possibility of irreversible global change represents, you know, now like the most significant challenge to our well-being on this planet. And these are words from Paul Crutzen, Nobel Laureate, and, and the uh, Stockholm Resistance Center. So in a way, this is not just you know, a more urgent time of transformation change, but it's the most urgent time uh, in, in a way. Uh, so I, I wanted to know from your various perspectives, um, one, you know, what is your response to the value and pur- purpose of either of these frameworks, as you uh, understand it, for arts and culture today? And second, uh, were there any create new creative concepts, facts or figures, or, you know, examples of mobile minds, cultural knowledge and change that you found particularly striking? Uh, so the first question is, you know, what was your response to these two frameworks? If, if, if indeed, you know, you, you, you have one <laughs> in relation to either of them. Let's start with maybe Kai, because you're the furthest away right now. <laughs> 
Thank you very much. Um, actually, I would like to look at it um, also by looking at the last um, World Summit that I've attended in Malta three years back, which was a lot about leadership mm -hmm. and looking very much at how the arts councils and arts um, agencies, cultural agencies, um, want to engage with leadership. And it was a it was a lot of um, talk about leaders, empowering other leaders, and facilitating very self-referential, self-congratulatory at times. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think what, what happened at the summits, and talking about cultural rights here, I'm actually starting with one of the provocations by Ashkan Fardis, which um, he was talking about artificial intelligence and large data companies. The technological shift that is happening is actually creating a challenge um, to the arts council and culture agencies as these technological players are now entering the arena of creating the rules for this creation of meanings. Um, and I feel that these agencies have very much feeling the challenge that is being brought about by, by these new players in the field. Interestingly, though, I believe that these culture agencies should not just be in the business of creating and brokering those, those meaning creation and that, um, creating that culture, but very much ensuring the access and the participation mm -hmm. and um, very much um, opening, yeah, like protecting those rights for people to exercise um, culture. So when we're coming to that, the cultural rights, which I guess we are currently not very good at protecting in the analog sphere, we now have a new arena that we need to worry about, which is protecting cultural rights in the digital sphere. Mm -hmm. That's one of the topics that resonated with me. Um, can I ask, Kai, uh, what, what, you know, can you expand on what you understood or what you understand to mean by, by cultural rights? Because I think it's been around 10 years, is, you know, there's fairly diverse uh, uh, de definitions about it. Well, of course, there's several um, definitions about it. Um, I think on the one hand, the very, very basic right of people, anybody, um, to exercise their culture, what they um, identify as to engage in arts, but engage in everything that is in the, in the cultural sphere without um, being dictated uh, what they should consume, how they should behave, what they should have access to or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that'll do nicely. <laughs> um, okay, can I just, I, I now would like to, to just uh, ask Sunita the same question. Um, of those two frameworks that were there, you know, the sort of idea around cultural rights um, and the Anthropocene, I mean, these are two things which kind of, in a way, put a sort of alarmist kind of, some might say, you know, sort of fire in the, thing, uh, uh, in the hold, you know, to, to really get going on what change might be and what leadership. Um, taking the point that Kai, you know, said that the last conference was sort of more sort of, I don't know, looks like a bit more gazing at the navel. This one seemed to be much more um, broad and expansive. Mm. Um, what, if anything, do you, do you think about those two frameworks? And, and was there anything striking about um, any of the examples of mobile minds that you thought worth sharing? Well, unlike Kai, I wasn't at the um, last one in Malta, and I haven't been to any Africa events, so this was my first experience of it. Um, and I think it's great that they are looking at bigger issues from what Kai described, if it was more navel-gazing. Um, this sounds like a positive step, but I can't help but feel a little bit um, 
I don't want to say cynical, but maybe questioning of the relevance for us specifically in this region. Mm -hmm. Because I feel that the Anthropocene is a very, it's a very current <clears throat> thing to be talking about. So, and it's very relevant, there's no doubt about that. But I do feel that when we look at arts practitioners and people on the ground who are the makers of culture, the producers of cultural products, um, I don't think that people are thinking about those issues as much. I'm not saying that they that, that means they shouldn't, mm -hmm. but I, I think there's a slight disconnect in what is being talked about in uh, a summit like this mm -hmm. and the realities on the ground. I think in this region there are certain cultural groups, arts practitioners, who have greater ecological awareness mm -hmm. um, of their work, um, who are dealing with these sorts of issues, who are grappling with them. But I think for a lot of people, it's just sustainability and survival still um, at a, quite a basic level. And they're not thinking necessarily about their impact, the impact of what they're doing or what's happening in the world and how that affects them. So that's how I feel about the Anthropocene. On the cultural rights thing, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Uh -huh. And it goes back to the fact that we don't have basic human rights still in a lot of the countries in this region. I'm going to speak, obviously, about the region that I know. Uh -huh. um, and it's my definition of cultural rights is very much a human rights definition. It's rights for... I mean, and, and we see this, um, the injustices still happening most evidently when we look at um, the rights of LGBTQ communities, when we look at indigenous people's rights. We have a lot of oppressive laws still, um, rights are not being recognized. So I find it interesting that we talk about cultural rights um, mm -hmm. when in across the world there are so many vast disparities still in terms of how people are recognizing and respecting these rights. Mm -hmm. um, I think, w if, if I can just say, I think um, I th the point was made by uh, Fami Fadil, who, I mean, he happens to be both an MP in Malaysia, but also uh, a, an arts and cultural practitioner, he, he talked about the need to translate cultural rights into the vernacular. Um, you know, that when we talk about human rights, when we talk about cultural rights, this can be very quickly captured into sort of like, oh, this is all a Western framework. Um, uh, this doesn't have um, impact on us uh, in this region. This, this is, you know, we, sh we should actually not think about arts and culture in this way. Um, I mean, as a question for both of you, uh, Kai, in, in, in your experience in, with Cambodia Living Arts, do you have that sort of issue that human rights or cultural rights are seen as a kind of Western import? Mm, um, from a political perspective, certainly yes. Um, but I think it's also just a very nice concept for people to discredit as an, um, as an imperial concept to really actively not think about it and not acknowledge it, even though the, you know, you know, the Human Rights Charter might not be exactly what we want, but the human rights as a concept is something that we all need to um, be adhering to and be and be valuing. I think it's it's very much at the core of what we need to do, especially in, in, in arts and culture and stand up for it. And by, I think, artists that we work with here, it is not necessarily um, a major theme that is going through a lot of the work, but very much an underlying issue, especially looking at where a lot of um, Cambodian arts is coming from, you know, the catharsis after um, certain years of, of intense trouble. Sunita, you, you, you're mentioning about that as well, right? That actually some of these issues are, are really sort of, what, above, over, over, that go over people's heads? I mean, not that people don't comprehend, but they're not a priority. 
I mean, I think if you really sit down and talk to people about cultural rights and human rights, I think people get it. Um, Kai mentioned the, the politics, and I think it's the, the, the politicization of it that, I mean, by our governments, by oppressive governments. And it's interesting that you mentioned Fami Fadil, because in Malaysia, the, the, you know, one of the things he did when he sat there was sort of remove himself from the previous regime as though the new government is going to do any better, but we're still not seeing it. So it comes down to politics and, and how um, culture is used to actually oppress people, through whether it's through the denial of, of their rights or by um, validating certain forms of culture and not others. The list goes on about how you know, it's used in negative ways. What are the priorities, you know, if, if, if I mean, I'm saying yeah. that cultural rights was one of the frameworks of yeah. this conference, uh, and I think you mentioned that, you know, well, that's sort yeah. of... Um, I mean, I think it, it still is. For a lot of, I mean, I, I, I tend to pay attention to artists who are doing socially engaged work or working a lot with communities. So for those types of artists, I think cultural rights is absolutely centred to what they do. Um, but I also... You know, in, in the field of arts management, um, the entire field itself is very much based on organizational sustainability. Um, when we, when our students in, here in Singapore do research um, on companies, one of the things that's still always the issue is how can I get funding? Mm -hmm. You go to Malaysia, the conversation still doesn't seem to move on from there. It's still very much how can I get funding? What was don't know whether the word is interesting. <laughs> uh, in, in, at Ifaka, there's a lot of the younger artists who had the opportunity to participate in mm -hmm. the, in the um, summit, um, they were asking questions that were very self-serving. It was all about how can I get more support for what I do as an artist. And I think, I'm not saying that they're representative of the, because I, I, we don't have any kind of figures to support that, we don't have any evidence of that. But I think it's still interesting to see that, that the conversation doesn't seem to be changing. They're not talking about the bigger things. They're not talking about all these Anthropocene kinds of issues. They're talking about how can I get support for what I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for you, Kai, uh, in terms of what Cambodia Living Arts uh, does, maybe can you explain a little of, of what both what uh, CLA does and, you know, because there was a group of you, what, what did you get out of the conference um, uh, specifically for your context? Just, I think I want to want to um, circle circle back a little bit to what what um, Sunita was just talking about the um, question of of where where are we at in the discussion and yes of course the the um, main ideas of like funding um, how do how do we support artists to do what they do best is a conversation that we have at CLA all the time because that is mainly what we do but. Um, the one thing, one theme that resonated with me that came out, maybe not directly in the main summit, but at the discussions at the fringe and mm -hmm. tours around um, KL was was the um, discussion of, of communities and spaces. Um, I don't think it was particularly addressed very much um, in the conference, but a lot of the Malaysian artists I met there um, were a lot about, about communities and how to build communities um, around, around those topics, around um, certain uh, cultural ideas and expressions. And the one question that was talked about during the summit was the idea of um, uh, digital communities. But I was 
felt very much that there was a strong need for physical communities because so many people are actually living so digital now and are so mobile that they actually need an, an anchor of sorts. Right. Um, um, I think the, the, I mean, each day kind of also focused on a particular sort of challenge or sort of, you know, approach to a disruption. Now, you talked about Ashkan's uh, presentation uh, or, or, well, it's, it was called keynote provocation, you know, not just keynote address. We will fall asleep. Uh, um, can you say a little bit more about what Ashkan um, uh, uh, spoke about? Because the, the sub-theme of it was creative disruption, being human in the digital age. Mm. I don't think it was so much a provocation of thinking about being human in the digital age. The provocation for me really came out in how he was addressing, albeit um, subtly, the arts councils and culture agencies in the room. As I um, tried to explain before, as I th what I think is he was really trying to challenge their legitimacy and what they do, because um, with all those new actors in the field, um, they have competitors, competitors maybe now from the private sector that are going and working in their domain of um, trying to um, you know, regulate arts and culture or support arts and culture. Mm -hmm. um, so really trying to um, provocate the the regulatory actors mm -hmm. in the field and see what are you actually doing? Are you reacting to mm -hmm. those new developments on a global scale in the right way? And um, I think Christine Danielson from the Arts Council in Norway said, yes, we need to be radically honest, we need to be radically curious, mm -hmm. we need to be radically open, open, we don't need to compete for national gain, but um, is that a result of um, seeing that, that overall framework of the digital sphere where those nations not exist anymore, or is that just um, another way to, um, you know, get the get the overhand over um, those challenges that they need to respond to. Mm -hmm. um, Sunita, do you have anything to, to respond um, in relation to this, you know, being human in the digital age? Well, I have to say that I did not attend the, the that keynote provocation, so I can't really comment on, on that specifically. And I'm also not a very digital person. Um, I think it's interesting, one of the things that um, I was thinking when, when Kai was speaking just now though, was about the fact that Ifaka brought in this person and also some of the private organizations and people who are coming from non-arts council, non-governmental bodies to talk about the work they're doing. Um, and I think that's you know, this, this point about whether or not that's cha a challenge to them about how they work I think is, is quite interesting because it also raises the the need or the necessity or legitimacy of some of these organizations and one of the things that um, was interesting for me was because we had so many of these non-governmental players there that made it interesting to see the conversation that's happening between them and the government bodies but I don't know what it leads to so it feels very much like you can bring all these really amazing people together but what's happening? We don't know how our governments are reacting to it or whether any of this is being taken on board. And for whose benefit is this? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the, 
obviously with so many different countries, 80 over countries represented, um, those are, are going to be, you know, individual contexts in which, it, you know, what is taken back, well, depends on how authoritative the, you know, the, the people who attended the conference are and what they're able to, to share. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, well, in relation to the, the being human in the digital age, I think that was a very interesting area for me because, like you say, Sunita, um, some of the questions that, were, uh, that many artists are dealing with on the ground would be uh, much more because you, you sort of there's no digital age as such. You have a phone. You have a you, 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 your 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 device uh, enables you to. It's it's not a digital thing. It's it's already a reality if you like. And some of the priorities of of human cultural rights uh, are um, what you you know what are focused on on the ground um, in 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 separate ways, uh, but. In relation to the technology, because I think you know some of some of that is combines both the sort of dance performances, human rights. How how can digital the convergence of these technologies actually? How are they going to impact uh, the future presentation, for example, of arts and culture? And I think one of the the areas that I found interesting was was just how much sort of you know represent representatives from Africa. Um, uh, talked around some of the really profound changes that, go, uh, that are going to impact them. Uh, realities such as, you know, well, I, um, that's around 700 million, uh, slightly more than what the whole of Southeast Asia. I think we're about five, 600 million now, but they're all going to be aged, the average age is 18 there. Um, and so, so how we think about being able to sort of convey issues around arts, culture, the cultural rights, it, what will people be using as their uh, technologies of presentation or the works, the artworks that they create. In relation to Ashkan, I, I thought that some of the sort of micro presentations that were there as well really served to sort of counterpoint or, or amplify in a way small uh, initiatives being done for very much larger umbrella topics. So I would just like to highlight that for me, for example, um, Yun Choi from South Korea and the USA. He's an artist and co-founder of the School of Poetic Computation. Mm -hmm. And he made this wonderful presentation that was so simple, illustration, uh, but served to really kind of uh, not only uh, illustrate from his point of view, you know, what he's working on, but also he took issue somewhat with Ashkan's kind of digital determinism, you know, that this idea that we're all, you know, we're all going to be overwhelmed by digital technology and it's all, it's all, you know, the idea of artificial intelligence, for example, is going to overwhelm us. Kai, you and I were in the same sort of uh, workshop around these three horizons. Precisely what Sunita brings up about what happens to this, we, we were told that as a result of that workshop, um, some of the ideas would be put together and then shared. I believe that that is going to be the case, but so far we're, you know, two weeks after the conference, I think, and, and nothing has come so far. In your experience with the Malta conference, did you feel there was any kind of continuity? I mean, a lot of discussion, a lot of excitement, a lot of inspiration, but then what happened? I would like to believe that the conversations uh, took place among the members of the Arts Councils <laughs> and in their board member board meetings and everything. Um, I know there's been a bit of a conversation afterwards, so I know Kathy has written a piece, I had written a piece, several other people have written reflections, and there was a little bit 
of a follow-up, but uh, the whole leadership discussion that was going on in Malta, I think, kind of faded away because, as I said, it was very, like, organizations and people were congratulating each other on how great their mm-hmm. um, non-hierarchical leadership is organized these days, um, which we may agree with or not. But uh, I think this one this conversation we have right now is precisely because it is about um, the digital question might have a lot more opportunities for us to keep talking about. And what Tayan said, um, Tayan Choi from the School for Poetic Computation is I think a really, really interesting idea for us to really deconstruct and understand what does digital actually mean? What are those, those um, how are we making meaning of one of those mm-hmm. mechanisms that can also create meaning either by itself through artificial intelligence or for people who have the resources to feed in algorithms that might influence us how to, we want to perceive things. Can, can I just jump right in? Yeah. Um, in response to um, what Kai and you raised about you know, what happens afterwards and the, the fact that the, we're supposed to see some kind of um, compilation of what people talked about and, and presumably some sort of steps forward, um, which we don't often see. Um, I mean, there is just the usual sort of conference fatigue that happens, that people come, you're inspired, <laughs> and you leave, and you go back to work, and you just, you know, you forget about it. It was just until the next holiday. But I think it, one of the things that, sessions that I attended that I really appreciated was mm-hmm. about citizen rights and oh, c- yeah. civic agency. And that was the long table. And we, can, can you, sorry, that, can you just say what, what can, ex, ex, uh, describe this long table? What, what, what was, what is that? Um, we, I don't remember everybody's names, but we had a person from Croatia, from the Canada Arts Council, and um, from Peru. But one, some of the words that were coming up with were um, transparency, mm-hmm. accountability, and you know, we're talking about cultural rights. We're talking about things like cultural democracy. Um, these are all government civic bodies mm-hmm. and I think we should be practicing certain we should be demonstrating transparency and accountability so if these are you know, the fact that you, you, you say you're not sure you presumably some conversations are happening between the governments and the arts councils but is it going to mean anything we don't know and that that sh- that's because there is no transparency we have no idea what sorts of conversations are happening and I think it's, there's a little bit of irony there that we can come together and so we can all be very intellectual about it and sit and listen to very inspiring people. Um, the one who was most inspiring um, to me was um, not a government person. Um, his name is Mauricio Delfin from Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really... I would massacre the name of his organization because it's in Spanish, so I shall uh, not say it. But the, um, he was on this uh, panel with... Um, uh, uh, somebody called Dia Vidovic from Croatia, who is the director of the Cultura Nova Foundation and the director um, um, of the Arts Council, I think, from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And the name of the panel was Cultural Citizenship, the Governance of Culture. So it was very much talking about how citizens need to be involved in this process, that it's not just what the government does and in the ideas of community, participation, all of these very good things were talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, we're not seeing it demonstrated, I feel, sufficiently at the, 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 the governance level. I'm sure in some countries that is happening. You're mm-hmm. talking about Southeast Asia now? Or? 
Southeast Asia, well, also there are other repressive areas of the world. One of the reasons why Peru is inspiring, because we see in Latin America a lot of examples of very grassroots revolutionary action. Um, I think that sort of civil society um, action, um, the sort of civil society engagement that we see in, in, in certain continents is not as developed here, for sure. I'm not saying that there still isn't um, a lack of transparency in governments in those parts of the world. That's precisely why people are, are acting and, 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 and responding and trying to hold their governments accountable. But I think we're a long way away, away from that. Mm -hmm. And IFACA is not leading, you know, leading by example. Is that because they cannot, uh, being more kind of uh, European-based or, or...? I don't know whether it's just the bureaucracy. Okay, Kai, could, would you like to add to this? Yes, um, I mean, very interesting, the, the open, open governance uh, uh, project that, that Mauricio is, is leading in Peru. I was also very, very inspired. But then looking back at what we're doing here in Cambodia, I think it's already first step. So what we are having is a monthly, we call it cultural task force. And obviously Cambodia being very small and very Phnom Penh-centered in its uh, arts community, uh, there's a monthly meeting of um, all the cultural actors that want to be part of that conversation. UNESCO is usually offering their, their premises, so the conversation can take place in somewhat of a safe space. And if people want they, a representative from the Ministry of Culture is invited. And what has happened over the past weeks and months is that actually policy proposals have been written and have been discussed with representatives from the ministry, especially around um, tax waivers for uh, cultural organizations, um, about uh, how to support the film sector in Cambodia. I hope that this might be a, a starting point for us to think more, how can we have more of those discussions, how can we get more together and work more collaboratively, maybe radically collaboratively, mm -hmm. to um, really bring that open governance idea forward and maybe also in one way start to responding to those ideas or those challenges that the um what was the the era of the anthropocene is now uh, presenting to us mm -hmm. um questions of sustainability in the area of cultural rights i was struck by how the language the translation that we had at the conference uh, it was available in french mm -hmm. uh, and spanish and I wondered um, in, in future, for example, you know, if I think this was the second time in 10 years or so that the conference, the summit was held within Southeast Asia. The last time was Singapore in 2003, yeah, I think it was, if not yeah, mistaken. 16 years ago. Okay, yeah. so, so um, I mean, it's, it is just this, you, know, you have all these members of, of IFACA, who are largely government rep, rep, representatives and depending, of course, on each country and whatever is the political situation in that country and the commitment. And, you know, we know that talking about leadership also, you know, the people who came who are representatives of those cultural agencies, by the time come round for the next summit, maybe they're not there. Even so, uh, in the area of cultural rights, I wonder how important either of you think it is to be able to use languages that are more representative, um, because I, I presumably the French and Spanish is to you know reflect in in the European context, which are the other languages apart from English. But this was uh, held in Southeast Asia. Uh, what what is your experience of going to 
conferences or, or in fact, I mean, any events where within Southeast Asia, if it's not English, who is paying for the translation, what other languages are spoken, so that people, you know, I mean, we know language is very important to express. So other than English, what, was, what is your experience? Because I think this was maybe a missed opportunity to be able to introduce other languages, um, because at least, I mean, it was held in Malaysia, uh, At the very least, we could have done Malay translation. Well, I, I think, yeah, because uh, English is not uh, going to be, is not uh, uh, the only language, although we have maybe, as we, we kind of, Malaysians go through paroxysms of <gasps> whenever a Malaysian speaks at the UN or whatever, and we expect them to speak in English, uh, uh, and there's, there's all, many people that do, but uh, how much experience do you have about how this issue of languages within Southeast Asia, how do we communicate other than to use English. <laughs> um, I mean, in Cambodia, obviously, the main language of communication is Khmer. Um, the other two languages that are usually be, being brought up in in public forums are English and French, as a colonial legacy, oh, yeah. very much. Yeah. Um, increasingly, though, you have a lot of young people who are refusing to use Khmer in a professional capacity and are more than happy to use English um, because apparently the vocabulary for certain technical um, areas is is much more developed than the one in Khmer. If that's a good direction, probably not, um, but it's a reality that we have to face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I feel it might also be a bit paternalistic to say, oh no, we have to have that conversation in that language rather than allowing people to choose the language they would want to have it in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. probably was not the case with the Ifaka uh, conversation because people did not have a choice to select any other language than English, Spanish or French when they were signing up. The language of all the material beforehand was not available in any other of those three official languages. Definitely something to think about and maybe not just spoken languages, but also other accessible um, languages, such as certain uh, country sign languages um, mm, yep, yep. into consider, or using the uh, new opportunities that the digital age brings us of instant translation, mm -hmm. um, you know, when, I mean, there was already um, live streams of certain, of certain sessions, mm. if there is a uh, algorithm that is just, you know, writing down everything that's being said and instantly translated into other languages, even though it might not be perfect because mm. it's a computer doing it, mm. um, it still opens the space for people who want to participate in it. Right, right. That yeah. would be great if we had that kind of technology. Um, I, I don't have an answer to your question, but it is something that I've been thinking about increasingly. Um, I, I think when it comes to the sciences and technical fields, English is the dominant international language so I can totally understand why young people in Cambodia want to speak that they feel the need to speak that and for many people around the world if you don't speak English well it's it you don't get ahead at, at an international level so there's that issue there but I think when we talk about culture and especially coming from a country like Malaysia um, or in Singapore where we are where there are major languages spoken other than English um, I think it's problematic that we assume in these international platforms that there is a certain level of proficiency of English for everyone who participates. Um, I am guilty of, of organizing forums um, and have been criticized for it, for mm -hmm. only doing it in English. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it's very very hard to get the resources to provide simultaneous translation in Bahasa as the national language of Malaysia, where we're from. Um, that's not readily available. And I, I don't, I mean, so I think it's an issue that needs to be addressed. I, I, I think it's, it's really telling that the government that is hosting this, that, has, uh, that had a large number of its staff participate in the forum at all levels, so we had junior and senior level uh, staff, who are going to have, maybe not everyone is going to have um, a very sophisticated command of English. Yep. Yep. Yet, there was not even an effort to print material in Bahasa, so they can't even read the um, program, the, not the program, but there was this other discussion paper. The discussion yeah. papers, yeah. So it's, I mean, I can understand simultaneous translation is very hard, although that existed in French and Spanish. Mm -hmm. But they're not even translating the discussion papers. So when is that critical engagement going to happen? When there isn't an effort made to 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 use a language that is going to be accessible to more people, mm -hmm. or to use languages that will be more accessible. Right. Right. Okay, well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. I just want to um, ask each of you to say, any, you know, any last words around what you, what was your, you know, personal uh, uh, advantage or benefit of participating in the conference, in the summit. Kai. Uh, I have, and I think that is the case with so so many conferences uh, taken the greatest benefit out of everything that happened at the fringes of the conference because mm -hmm. the theme was there and it brought all the right people together but the important discussions happened in the coffee breaks, mm -hmm. the important discussions happened uh, at the Three Horizons um, table even though um, being initially very critical of the, of the um, methodology. But uh, I've connected with, with uh, partners in the region, and, uh, and that's what I'm very grateful for, and had those uh, important discussions about space that I mentioned earlier, space and community, really. Right, right. Thanks, Kai. Sunita, any last words? Um, I think these, these types of organizations, I mean, events are great for networking. You meet people who, I mean, I don't know if they're the right people, Kai, <laughs> um, but you do meet a lot of um, really important people to your work. And, and you also get the chance. What was really uh, great for me personally, I felt, was that rarely do we have the opportunity to meet people from Africa and Latin America. These mm -hmm. are place, Latin America is very far away from us, but we have so much to learn um, more from um, um, the speakers in Kenya than we do from a speaker in Norway, that's for sure. But we don't often get those opportunities. So I think that was really a, quite a nice thing to happen. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I really felt it was such an eye opener. And even mm. though some of the conversations were, I did feel kind of quite intellectually or or about governance, which was sort of not really kind of my priorities. Um, nevertheless, the full four days, it was, it was, uh, you know, intense in a way that was mm. in, quite inspiring. Um, uh, so I wanted to thank. Uh, thank you, Sunita. Thank you, Kai, for joining us in this podcast on Mobile Minds, Culture, Knowledge and Change, the uh, eighth World Summit on Arts and Culture, which was held in Kuala Lumpur um, from the 11th to 14th of March. Thank you for the thank conversation. You. Thank you.